Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. We begin our program, as we do every day, with the latest on health and healing. This study comes from the University of Electronic Science and Technology. It's a study reported in renal failure, and it looks at vitamin C and how vitamin C in the diet is able to reduce your risk of chronic kidney disease. So that's important. Again, the more vitamin C, the higher serum level, the less kidney, chronic kidney disease. And we need this information because so many people have kidney problems. It's just one of the best antioxidant therapies involving vitamin C and its viable strategy for enhancing outcomes. They looked at 4,969 men and women enrolled in this National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey concerning vitamin C, urinary albumin to creatine ratio, by the way, which is used to diagnose if you have chronic kidney disease and other factors. And the higher the vitamin C, the less chronic kidney disease. In fact, when the subjects were divided into four groups according to their vitamin C levels, those in the third 25% had a 37% lower risk of urinary tract albumin and a 47% lower risk of uh, GFR and 46% reduced risk of kidney disease compared to those that had the lowest level. Just want to share that with you. From the University of Portsmouth, dopamine could explain why exercise helps boost your brain. A study exploring the mechanisms behind why cognitive performance improves in response to exercise has found that dopamine plays a key role. The neurotransmitter and hormone, which is tied to pleasure and satisfaction and reward. You just feel good. That's why a lot of people get hooked on anything that will hit their dopamine levels up, like cocaine, unfortunately, and sugar, just two examples. But exercise does it the right way. And that's why we call it the runner's high. Because when you're out there doing your workout, as I did this morning, and suddenly my mind becomes very creative, and I start writing in my mind. If I go out for a five-mile run, I can write a whole commentary. By the time I get back, I just, you know, write it out. So the neurotransmitter and hormone, which is tied to pleasures and satisfaction and motivation, is known to increase when you work out. New findings suggest it is also linked to faster reaction time during exercise. The researchers behind the discovery say it could help lead to a new therapeutic pathway for cognitive health because of dopamine's significant role in several conditions, including Parkinson's, schizophrenia, ADHD, addiction, and depression. This was published in the Journal of Physiology. So, one more reason, and a good reason, for you to do your exercise every day, five days a week. All right? A new study has found that stress through its propensity to drive up inflammation in the body, is also linked with metabolic syndrome, leading researchers to suggest that cheap and expensive, relatively easy stress management like meditation, deep breathing. Do you remember, I'll bet many of you will recognize this, when you start to get angry about something and you're breathing right up here in your throat and your mom says, just count to 10 and relax, breathe, count to 10. And you did, and suddenly you felt different. That's just a simple technique. Go to neutral. 
When I'm debating people, and I've done hundreds and hundreds of debates, I don't take what they're saying against me to try to win the debate personally, nor do I see that I'm looking for a weakness in their argument to make them look bad. That's not the point. I know what I want to say on any given issue, and I just stay in neutral emotionally so they can say what they want, do what they want. I'm going to make my point without anger, without hostility, without demeanment, and with an abundance of decor and manners. So this is one of the lessons we learn in life, that we can actually improve our biological health outcomes if we just stay calm and stop flaring off all the time. So links between stress and biological health are well established, but few previous studies have looked specifically at the involvement of inflammation and stress's connection to metabolic syndrome. So let me just put it this simple. When you get angry, when you get stressed, when you get fearful, all of these things like high blood pressure suddenly occur. Your bad cholesterol goes up. Your heart can change its rhythm because there's electrical conductivity every second of your life to your heart. And high stress levels will change that conductivity, which means you literally could stress yourself into a heart attack or a stroke. Yeah, It also adversely affects the glucose levels and triglycerides levels. Not good. So let's just deal with stress in a way that we can learn its lesson and still live. Now, a University of Nottingham study shows that yoga can have social benefits for children in, in care. A new study from the University of Nottingham has found that a certain type of yoga could potentially help to improve the health and psychological well-being of children in care. The study was carried out by experts from the University of Nottingham's Institute for Mental Health. The study found that the practice of kundalini, K-U-N-D-A-L-I-N-I, yoga in care homes, when both staff and children were involved, can lead to both individual and social benefits. Now, years ago, I'm going to guess around 20 years ago, I did four different documentaries on stress because new information kept coming forward. And one of them was the power of breathing and yoga and calming us down and creating clarity. I went to a studio down in the 20s on 6th Avenue. It was at that time probably New York's number one yoga studio. And it was an old building, but they had those old polished wood floors and uh, big windows and a very serene environment. And they had wonderful, very low meditation music. And they had these absolutely sublimely, perfectly figured men and women who were doing the yoga and these wonderful poses. And when I went to set up my camera, I'm looking at probably around 100 people at one time with yoga mats. And it was just a beautiful thing to watch. Now, I've done yoga, but to watch it from this perspective as a director making a film is different. So afterwards, I ask people, how many of you have children? About half the hands went up. And most of these people were in their mid to late 20s, early 30s. I didn't see any older people. And I said, how many of you have brought your children in to do yoga? And a lot of them said yes. And specifically at that time, it was kundalini yoga. 
that, but by the way, it was used in a different way. Back then it was used as a way of channeling the chi, the primal chi, your sexual desire and energy, to control it. And I was working with Dr. Elaine Kahn from Columbia University at the New York Center for Marital Guidance. She handled the women, I handled the men. And one of the most common problems with young men was premature ejaculation. Some couldn't even wait. And so I got them into kundalini yoga and meditation. And after about two to three months of trying this, they were able to control that primal chi. Someone could go for hours in their intimacy contact using kundalini, which heightened, I won't get into it now, all the things kundalini can do, but it really, it allows every single part of your body to be a sensation uh, so that you can feel feel a person's touch differently, your embrace is different, your hug is different, your eye contact. Just in one of the exercises was uh, the two partners would sit across from each other and just stare in their eyes and share an energy of pleasure and passion through your eyes. Powerful. But we don't do that in the United States. And as a result, we miss a whole lot of doors to open in life that could give us greater pleasure in life, control our breathing, bring down stress. Because I also use that in a class to show men who, especially men who had anger problems and were impulsive with that anger, boom, they just jumped out with their anger, yelling, cursing, whatever. And I said, okay, just go to neutral and say, what am I really dealing with? What is this about? miscommunication, not feeling honored in some way, and then use that energy, the kundalini energy to say, it's all right. Communicate in a way I can understand and that does not abuse me, and I'll respond in kind. And suddenly people found out that they weren't getting angry all the time. The things that got them off before, like, you know, and driving and someone cut them off and they'd yell and scream in car rage, they didn't do that anymore. So I'm just simply suggesting that for your children, it's really good. For you, it's good. So this new study was carried out under the belief of creative practice as mutual recovery and looked at the idea that shared creativity, doing it with another person, collective experience and mutual benefit can promote resilience in mental health and well-being among communities that have been traditionally divided. So, one last thing on this. I've been a coach since July 4th, 1975. I've coached tens of thousands of individuals on how to get into shape, how to run marathons. We guesstimate around 32,000 people who've come to the running and walking club over the decades have done a marathon or two or three. The average is three. But then a lot of people want to do shorter races and so we train them to do that. In the next two days, I'm going to post on GaryNall.com under Lifetime Achievements exercise, and you're going to see thousands of faces because over the years, people would take photographs and say, hey, Gary, you know, you, you, know, you had 800 more or less to 1,000 people at your running club meeting this week. They ran clear up the block, and it was so much I had to you know, bring out a bullhorn or one of the tech people brought me a microphone with speakers. We put the speakers out because there were just so many people I couldn't reach them all. 
one of the things I learned early on was I had to teach the lesson that I was going to share with them. So we all went out together. I would go out with the slowest runners, joggers, walkers, and some of the other coaches we had who had done at least, to be a coach you had to do at least 10 marathons and had to be in the group for at least three years. So you really knew everything that there was. And we were the only holistic running and walking club that I'm aware of in America. And some of the greatest athletes in American history were in that group. They weren't elite when they went in. They sure were when they came out. Thelma Wilson, Joan Rowland, Queenie Thompson, Sam Skinner, Sid Howard, you know, uh, Louise Nottage, probably the greatest senior athlete in history. And these were just normal people. But they learned everything about why to exercise and how to exercise and how to recover, how not to put your ego into it and to do it together, you know, and... So doing that together makes all the difference. So whenever anyone was out there, I was with them. I've done over 84 marathons. I've done over 500 races and never missed a Sunday if I was in New York or Wednesday for the speed training. But it makes a difference when they see that the teacher, the coach, is doing it right with them, not just on the sideline with a whistle blowing with a big fat belly. (laughs) No. And so do things together. All right? If you're a teacher, understand that the classroom is only one form. Let the students know that you're studying as well as asking them to study. You're taking tests as well as they are taking tests. You're continuing your education as you're asking them to get their primary education. It makes a huge difference. And this study is just one that showed it. All right? They use this Kundalini for 20 weeks, 20 weeks, yoga. Uh, in three children's homes uh, situated in East Midlands. That's it on health nutrition. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. We're going to be dealing with a lot of important issues. My concern is, who do we have in our government who's willing to take these issues and give us the complete story? both the problem and the solutions. What can we as individuals do if we do not trust that our government is going to be a part of a solution? In fact, in most cases, the government is a part of the problem. What happens when we can't trust the media to be objective and honest and do their due diligence and homework, but rather send out information that is completely wrong, as you'll see in a few moments? But a big concern to younger people, especially those who before had voted for or supported Bernie Sanders, or for the older, more mature, liberal Democrats, the liberal Democrats that would have been around in to support, let's say, John F. Kennedy Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy when he was running for office. Well, a lot of people were going to support RFK Jr. until they heard him supporting Netanyahu and the Likud Knesset members that saw only, only corruption coming and defiance and terrorism out of uh, the Palestinian population in Gaza and the West Bank. So he's been rather firm and steadfast in supporting Israel and not the Palestinian people. So I wrote him a letter. I know Robert. And uh, he responded. 
I'll read the letter to you in a few moments. But before we say, no, we don't want Robert F. Kennedy Jr., ask yourself this. Who, of all the candidates, who is most likely to understand who is a part of the problem, who's a part of the rot within Washington, D.C., the lobbyists, the so-called technocratic experts who are not expert at anything, who are always put into these positions of power. I don't care which administration. Obama, Obama had the top person at Citibank select his entire cabinet. And yet there was no criticism of this. These are all corporatists. These are neoliberals. And that's why we continue to do the things we do. Does anyone know of anyone who knows more about the deep state, the CIA and its corruption, than Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? I don't. Robert is imperfect, but he acknowledges that. He wrote a whole best-selling book about the demons that he had to fight in his own life, the bad choices he made, the drugs, the alcohol, everything that he did wrong. He brought it out in public. So he was honest and transparent. When was the last time any of the people did that? You haven't seen it. You won't see that in any of the attorney generals like Barr or any of the ones before him, uh, like Holder under Obama. You won't see it from Obama. No, anything they wrote about themselves is always in praise of themselves. Look at, look at how I overcame certain obstacles of prejudice, but never their own weaknesses, never them being complicit. Robert did. I have found on a personal level Robert to be very open. In a discussion, he will listen. He doesn't try to hog the conversation. He doesn't try to dominate the conversation. He's open to practical solutions. So I am confident, based upon the information I'll be sharing, that if nothing else, at least he will read it. Whether he chooses to accept it or not, that will be his choice. But even that said, if he still continues to only support Israel and not the Palestinian, innocent Palestinian people who are anti-Hamas, then I still have to ask, who would be best to help clean up our environment? Who would be best to rebuild the infrastructure of our cities? Who would be best to make sure that we get universal health care? Who would fight the corporations? Who would bring the Justice Department to bear on those that have committed crimes, not letting get away with something? Well, to understand that, you have to understand what Robert's done. Just like Gandhi. Gandhi was not perfect. He was unique. And we remember him. Many of his quotes and statements, all of us who grew up wanting to know more about a person who had strong opinions and helped lead the freedom of an entire nation, along with others, Nehru and his group of seven, along with Mahatma Gandhi. But it was Gandhi who was causing that. He was leading the salt strikes. He was defiant. He went to jail multiple times. He went on a hunger strike. He was willing to die for the principles he believed in. But he also was not, uh, he was not a perfect person by any means. Martin Luther King had affairs. He was not a perfect person, but who could write and inspire people to higher thoughts than Martin Luther King? To this day, when I hear his Riverside speech, or his I Had a Dream speech. It motivates. Wow, someone thought those words and used them. 
but we still appreciate Martin Luther King in spite of his limitations. Same with Malcolm X, W.D. Du Bois. I can name you a hundred people who lack perfection. So don't look at these people as perfect. And if they make a mistake, then you have to throw it all out. Because for 40 years, Robert Kennedy Jr. fought corruption in government agencies and corporations. Do you know any other candidates done that? None. Not now or not in the past. In fact, his work was so important in helping us, we the people, that Time Magazine named him Heroes of the Planet for his success with Hudson River Keepers to restore the Hudson River. River Keepers now have 160 organizations around the world trying to clean up the water. He is best known for prosecution against Monsanto's cancer-causing Roundup. Monsanto had to settle for $11 billion. Until that time, Monsanto had never lost any of these cases. Monsanto was not happy with my documentary, Seeds of Death. And Seeds of Death was only played on one PBS station, Rocky Mountain Television. And it was played over 80 times because of a very courageous, extraordinarily uh, brilliant person. Her name was Sherry Bernson. And she was the special coordinator over there. I did over 32 programs, original programs, and, and broadcast them on there. At least people knew the dangers of what Monsanto was doing when that documentary came out. But it was Robert Kennedy and two other law firms that took that one gentleman, that groundskeeper, who had been exposed to uh, to, uh, glyphosate roundup and won the settlement. Now, tens of thousands have won. Robert Kennedy represented native tribes in the United States and Latin America and Canada to negotiate treaties to protect traditional homelands. Do you know anyone who's done that? Why don't you ask the Native Americans outside of Danny Sheehan, who else has come to work with them without charging pro bono and gotten them their rights back? In 1990, he helped the uh, Penchi tribe in Chile to stop a series of dams In 1992, he represented the Cree Indians against 600 dam proposals on tribal lands. In 1993, he represented the Confederation of Indian People against oil giant Conoco on destruction of the Ecuadorian Amazon. In 1993 to 1999, he worked with five nations in Canada to oppose logging of last remaining coastal rainforest in British Columbia. From 1996 to 2000, he represented Mexico fisheries communities against Mitsubishi's salt facility in well-breeding waters of Baja. In 2016, he worked with Standing Rock Sioux Reservation against Dakota Access Pipeline. It led to the legal fight to protect New York City's water supply, the Watershed Agreement. That was him. He led suits against General Electric for toxic runoff from jet hangars. He led suits against ExxonMobil to clean up tens of millions of gallons of spilled oil in Brooklyn. Brooklyn, I should say. He represented family farmers against agro-giants like in, in North Carolina, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, Ohio, Oklahoma, and Maryland. Do you know anyone who's done that? He, re- he was arrested in 2001 for protesting U.S. military testing in Puerto Rico fisheries waters which led to the termination of U.S. bombing projects causing cancer from uranium exposure. He caused that. In 2007, he won $396 million verdict on behalf of West Virginia communities 
from DuPont chemical plant contamination. He engaged in a four-year battle against Ford Motor Company over toxic waste dumping in New Jersey. He had a long-time battle against Appalachian mountaintop removal for mining. He represented California communities sickened by Southern California gas, the largest gas leak in U.S. history. In 2018, he led the prosecution against Columbia Gas Company for negligent pipeline maintenance leading to explosions in three towns near Boston. He founded the Children's Health Defense to address childhood chronic disease and toxic exposure. He lobbied for removal of vaccine uh, adjuvant mercury. The chief, he was the chief counsel for of the World Mercury Project, led to a long crusade against big pharma. Who else is not afraid of big pharma? Who else knows the truth of how toxic their drugs and vaccines are? He has done that. Early, he was involved in United Farm Workers and supporting the unionization of farm workers. They wouldn't be exploited. And he was, in fact, he was one of Cesar Chavez's pallbearers. He served as senior attorney for the Natural Resource Defense Council. He served as assistant district attorney of New York City. He was clinical professor at Pace University School of Law's Environmental Litigation Clinic. He's a graduate of Harvard, has a law degree from University of Virginia. And uh, he also studied uh, at London School of Economics. Now, that's just a small part of his resume, a small part of what he's done. So here's the question. Of the candidates running, all of them, who has done even one hundredth of what he's done? There's only one other person who has not held political office that has done more, and that's Ralph Nader. No one will ever in human history duplicate what Nader did. He helped us at every level, selflessly and tirelessly. He's still there today, helping. So, my hope is that before he continues to support only one side of the issue in Gaza, that he will read and watch the definitive information on that it is genocide that I'm presenting and giving him today. I'll post it so you can also look at it if you're undecided. It's honest, it's accurate, there's no opinion in it, there's no bias in it. I'm gonna see peace for both the Jewish people and the Palestinian people. And historically for hundreds of years they lived in peace together, but not today. And not because the people don't want peace, it's because the leaders don't want peace. So that's, just wanna let you know, if there's one person who will go after the deep state, it would be Robert Kennedy Jr. Just want to share that. But who you vote for and why is your business. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. And if you'd like to call in, I'll set time aside to take your calls. We have a lot of people in this audience who have a lot of insight and some good common sense. Our number is 888-874-4888. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. I've never read a letter that I've written to anyone, but in this case, I'm making an exception because I believe that Robert has been motivated through his position on Israel of not speaking up on behalf of the innocent 
Palestinians who don't want Hamas, don't like Hamas, have nothing to do with Hamas, just regular human beings who lived under apartheid conditions. So I'm going to read this. You can agree or disagree with it. Uh, Dear Bobby, we are familiar with your statements regarding Epstein, and we support them. By the way, he acknowledged that he had been on Epstein's plane twice, but it was with his wife and children, and it wasn't to his island. It was two short stops uh, in the Midwest. And he acknowledged that. And a lot of people, and I'll get to this later, a lot of people who were around Epstein didn't know that he was a child predator, uh, and this is even before his conviction, and, uh, but he was a magnet for people who were interested in being funded or being entertained in that lifestyle, the Ritz and the so-called uh, the top echelon of, uh, of people who can open doors for you. But more on that later. In any case, um, Richard Gale and I are very critical about information and reports we receive daily that have been credible Uh, to report on our programs. However, we don't allow anything on the air that we cannot substantiate independently. Therefore, about 80% of all the information people send us, or tips we get, we end up having to dismiss because we cannot validate them. However, on the issue of Israel-Palestinian crisis, despite the controversies according to international laws and definitions to charge Israel with genocide, Experts on this matter, such as Professor John Mersheimer and especially John Durgan, who, among the world's leading experts on Israel's human rights violations and war crimes committed against Palestinians, are convinced of Israel's genocidal motivations. Very likely you watch Dugard's statements at The Hague, and then we have a clip that goes right to that. And likewise, Mersheimer's has stated just recently on Glenn Greenwald his feelings on the same. Yes, both have been criticized by the Anti-Defamation League, but in our opinion, the Anti-Defamation League has no credibility whatsoever and is saturated with ideological biases and ill intent. The Irish International Criminal Court expert, Blaney N. Magrele, who was pivotal in the Croatian-Serbian genocide case, presented evidence at the ICI that the Israeli team frantically dismally failed to counter with any credibility. Again, I I cite that, and you can hear and watch the judge in that trial. Um, Then there are the other important Jewish scholarly voices, such as the very famous, highly respected Jewish journalist Gideon Levy, um, Ian Pape, Norman Finkelstein, and our close associates, Rabbi Michael Lerner and Rabbi Arthur Wasco, whose positions on Israel-Palestine we are aligned with. We would also point you to a site that has been collecting hundreds of Israeli quotes, including from leaders of the Likud party and the Knesset, including the right-hand people of, of Netanyahu, including the Minister of Defense, where they state unequivocally their intent to destroy Palestinians, that if you if you live in Gaza, then you are Hamas supporter, which is not true. It's absurd. After all, it was Israel that created Hamas as a terrorist organization. More on that on an upcoming program. So we cite these hundreds of Israeli 
uh, quotes about the destruction of uh, Palestinians, that is, if they have no value as a human being, not even their children. And despite our personal opinions about Hamas, that doesn't account for the unwarranted violence and crimes Israelis are now inflicting on the West Bank. We oppose Hamas as well, but it's impossible to condone Israel's current strategies leading to blatant war crimes against innocent souls. We hope your forthcoming paper and video will rein in support for your campaign. Bobby, for now, you still have our support. Because although we disagree with you strongly with your pro-Israeli stance and your Zionist supporters, your many hundreds of other contributions and national positions, in our opinion, outweigh the Israeli crisis, or at least your support for it. Uh, and hopefully you will change your mind after seeing independent information that shows clearly and unequivocally Israel has committed heinous war crimes. And another way of looking at it is you believe in children. You have the Children's Defense Fund. does great work. It's unique and original. And it's a form for hundreds, if not thousands, of journalists, scholars, to offer their opinions about what has been done wrong to the human condition, and especially children, and how to write it. No one else has done that. So think well going forward, because a lot of historical liberal Democrats that would have supported your father and his brother, your uncle John F. Kennedy, and others, Martin Luther King, they would take issue, I believe, today with your position. But you've always shown yourself to be open, and if good quality evidence is able to usurp your beliefs, then I've always seen that you have been a person that's willing to change your mind. On this, I hope you do. For the young idealists who are looking forward to supporting you, then please think well on this. And that's from Richard Gale and myself. And it's posted on Live. Now we're going to go to one of those experts. I want you to hear what one of the world's leading experts, and there's no better scholar than Professor John Mersheimer, and he says, quote, yes, Israel is committing genocide. And he does so by deep scholarship in foreign relations. Let's hear what he has to say being interviewed by Glenn Greenwald very recently. All right, Professor John Mearsheimer has been a guest on this show several times. He is a political scientist at the University of Chicago. He's the author of the 2006 uh, book, the uh, Israel Lobby. He has a new article out just this week on his Substack, which I highly recommend that we're going to discuss with him, among other things, that is called The Genocide in Gaza, which analyzes the formal complaint filed by the country of South Africa against Israel at the International Court of Justice. We're going to talk to him about the war itself, the risk of ex escalation, what's taking place in Ukraine, where there still is a war, even though people seem not to want to talk about it and have forgotten about it, and several other related issues as well. It's always a uh, pleasure to have him on the program. Professor Mearsheimer, good evening, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us again. It's great to see you. It's great to see you, Glenn. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So let's start with that article um, that I referenced. Uh, 
I want to obviously talk about the article where you express your own views on the complaint filed by South Africa and the allegations that it asserts in the documents and evidence it marshals to substantiate it. But before we get to your views on that, tell us what we need to know about this complaint, the context that led up to it and exactly what it is that it alleges. Well, I think there's sort of three important dimensions here. First of all, it's necessary to show intention. In other words, uh, the South African lawyers understood that they had to provide evidence that Israel had the intent to commit genocide. Second, you have to show evidence of destruction and death uh, inside of Gaza that reflects uh, an effort to either destroy the Palestinian population as a whole or to destroy a substantial part of it. So there's the intention plus the action. And then the third thing is context. And what the report does is it shows that although Israel has not engaged in genocide before with regard to Gaza, there's no question that Israel has pursued for a very long time really brutal policies towards the Gazan Palestinians. And therefore, although this is a more extreme form of behavior on the part of the Israelis, it's not that unusual, not that special, given what's happened before. So those are the three key dimensions at play here, in my opinion. So I've been a vocal and I would say unflinching critic of Israeli behavior in general with regards to the Palestinians long before October 7th, starting on October 8th, I knew what the Israelis were gonna do because they were pretty clear in saying exactly what they intended to do in Gaza. Netanyahu said on the night of October 7th, the morning of October 8th, we're gonna extract a price in Gaza unlike anything we've previously done there. Israeli officials have been making statements even before October 7th, certainly after, that show a different face of an Israeli government that has become more extreme. We talked about that the last time you were on my show in late October uh, of last year. I nonetheless have been a little bit reluctant, and I know you talked about in your article that you had too, to use the word genocide to describe what the Israelis are doing in Gaza, notwithstanding the fact that it's easy to say that it's morally horrific and extraordinarily excessive, and to me at least seems like a sociopathic indifference to civilian life at the very least, Simply because, at least for me, the term genocide is a lot like other terms that we use in our political vernacular, like terrorism or hate speech or disinformation that seems to me almost more ill-defined than it is concretely defined. Do you have that concern about the term genocide, that it seems a little bit ambiguous and vague in its definition? And if not, what is your understanding of exactly what someone has to do, a country has to do, to go from simply killing a lot of civilians intentionally or recklessly and then spills over into genocide? Like, what is that line for you and for the definition? Yeah, I agree with everything that you said. And as you pointed out in the Substack piece that I wrote, I said that up until uh, the truce ended, the truce between uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis on November 30th, uh, I refrained from referring to what was going on as a genocide. I think uh, from the very beginning, you could make the argument that there was genocidal intent there. 
And a number of historians of the Holocaust made that point very clearly, that if you were listening to what the Israelis were saying very early in the war, it was genocidal intent. But if you looked at what they were actually doing, I found it anyway hard to make the argument before uh, December 1st that the Israelis were aiming to destroy and here I'm choosing my words carefully here, and I'm reflecting what's in the South African document, uh, a substantial portion of the uh, Palestinian population in Gaza. If you look at the number of people that were killed up through November 30th and what the Israelis had done, you could make a case had they not gone back on a rampage starting on December 1st, that yes, what they were doing was horrific, but it didn't qualify as a genocide. But actually, if you look at what they did after uh, November 30th, starting on December 1st, they actually ramped up the offensive campaign. And I think if you look at the situation as it's described uh, in the South African document, it's very clear that they are intent on killing a substantial portion of the Palestinian population in Gaza. And that, I believe, qualifies as genocide. Now, again, you can have your views pro or con that, and you can share them with us at our talkback number. But do you remember when we were told um, everything about COVID that we were discriminated against, we were attacked. In fact, President Biden wanted to fire everyone in the United States who wasn't vaccinated. Fortunately, he didn't have the legal right to do that, and that was stopped. But you would think that COVID was just happening today based upon what they're telling us now, but now they're the entirety, the entirety of the American media is saying the babies, the children, the young people, they're at very big risk. Well, we found Nature, the most respected scientific publication in the world, shows they're not. To the contrary, far more children and young adults will die because of the vaccine side effects than of COVID. In fact, it was 0.000003%. That's almost non-existent. And yet you wouldn't know that. So let's listen to the propaganda going on right now of trying to get parents to vaccinate their children. Growing fears for COVID's youngest victim. We're talking about how horrible, how much of a risk it is to children. This virus is capable of killing children. It has already killed hundreds of children. It's getting our kids. The more cases you have, the more deaths among children. Tragic deaths. Coming for our children. Kids are getting infected. Kids are getting infected. They're still getting infected. Literally hundreds of children were infected. Kids are in danger. They are vehicles of spread. Children spread the virus. It may be that children who get infected have long-term consequences. Parents of children of all ages should assume that even the smallest symptom could be COVID. Young children are being affected. This virus takes its toll on our children. This is killing children. Children have died. Children have died. Children could die every day. It's killing children. Killing children. COVID-19 is disproportionately killing children of color. Children die of COVID. 
This is killing kids right now. It's taking children's lives. Really hitting it. Children. Death, morbidity. It is picking off young people like we've never seen. Deaths from COVID are incredibly rare among children. A death rate of zero. Point zero, 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 zero. It doesn't matter how low the risk. Risk to children. The danger for children and the need for them to be vaccinated. The only chance these children have is masking and a vaccine. Millions of parents across the United States desperate to get their children under 12 vaccinated. Unvaccinated kids are at risk. Children are at high risk. The unvaccinated are putting kids at risk. The unvaccinated are at risk to young children. I need to be now careful for my children because of all the unvaccinated people around us. If you are not vaccinated, do not go around children. America shouldn't be sending unvaccinated kids to school. Growing concern about unvaccinated children. It's like we're playing with the lives of children by not isolating ourselves until things are under control. Don't come out and infect my great-grandkid. You lied about your vaccine status and you sneeze on my grandchildren? That could be a crime. I'm more worried for children than I've ever been. Growing crisis for children. The number of kids infected. The coronavirus is reaching alarming levels. Alarming numbers. The alarming surge in the number of children infected with COVID. It's crucial for students 12 and up to get vaccinated. We need these vaccines pretty urgently. It really is a very urgent situation. We need to raise the level of urgency. The sense of urgency. Since we've been vaccinated, how dangerous is it to be near our grandchildren? Parents grow increasingly concerned. Deeply concerning. Leaving many parents concerned. Parents concerned. They're still concerned. The reports are deeply concerning. Kids are starting college in three weeks and they're not going to be alive. So I feel like I'm sending my son into a situation where it will be hard to protect himself. Students who did not get vaccinated were disenrolled. Asymptomatic students who test positive are ordered to a room where they spend 10 days in confinement. Food is dropped off once a day at the door. Doesn't that sound extreme to you? Um, our updated guidance actually says you can leave isolation after five days if you can wear your mask all the time, including um, being able to eat meals alone so that you uh, are not infecting others while you eat. From your data, ages 15 to 24, the risk of death is at 0.001%. Yeah, I, um, here's what I'll tell you. I'll tell you that children need to be protected. That's why we all need to get vaccinated to protect them. If we really care about protecting our children, then vaccinate them. Protect the kids. Do it for the child. The way to protect them is for all the rest of us to get our vaccines. Think of their children. And these are children. If we want to protect kids, the number one thing to do is to vaccinate everybody around them. So if you want to protect your grandchildren, vaccination again is the answer. And so what my responsibility is, is to provide guidance and recommendations to protect the American people. Those recommendations strongly uh, recommend vaccination for our children above the age of five. That is Dr. Lewinsky, head of the CDC, and everything that they said, everything that everyone said except two comments were wrong, scientifically, demonstrably wrong. And I have dozens of scientific peer review articles to support that the children were not at risk what they were at risk of is being isolated, wearing masks that did not prevent viral infection and spreading it, 
and just building up their immune system. And child's have, children have strong immune systems. And yet, this is all propaganda campaign. Much like if you were to read 1984 by Orwell or Brave New World and assume that uh, these were nonfiction. But who's behind all this? Well, here's one person. Now listen to how he changes his story, as if we couldn't go back and do our homework on Dr. Fauci. Listen to Fauci, what he originally says. Uh, I never told people, uh, I was never strong, I was kind of neutral about all this. No, you weren't. You lie, constantly. Let's hear it from his own words. If it may have been a lab, may have been nature, we're supposed to look forward, then why did Dr. Fauci work so hard for just one of those theories? What do you say to that? I almost have to laugh at that, Neil. I mean, that's totally bizarre. First of all, I wasn't leaning totally strongly one way or the other. I wasn't leaning totally strongly one way or the other. Flashback. What I do feel strongly about is that this was a spillover from an animal species to a human. Strongly suggesting that, in fact, it was a natural occurrence. Very strongly. Strongly indicating that it was a natural spillover. Strongly points to this being a natural occurrence. Pointing much more strongly. Pretty strong. Towards a natural occurrence. Very, very strongly. Strongly favors a natural occurrence. I wasn't leaning totally strongly one way or the other. It's very, very strongly leaning towards this could not have been artificially or deliberately manipulated. I lied and lied. There's a distinct anti-science flavor to this. Yes, and you're the anti-scientist. Show me anything you've done that actually has been scientifically, independently approved that works on extending the human lifespan and preventing disease. Because I remember you, I remember you very well, back in the 1980s, when we were saving people's lives, not one single patient died out of 2,000 patients, 1,200 we were working with at one time, and then 800 I personally worked with before the Tri-State Tang Center, same protocol, and those that went on an advanced protocol, instead of coming in once every two weeks, to get their natural treatment. And by the way, I had 22 board-certified medical staff, and uh, they could have used any medicine that they chose, and they were instructed, whatever you see is best the patient, but not once in 15 years did they have to do that because the natural approaches worked. And of the advanced group, 18 said, yes, we'll try it. All 18 reversed their HIV status to negative, regained all their health, their T cells came back to normal, no opportunities to infections, and the one doctor who came to learn uh, from us, because we had an open-door policy, he'd be there at 8 o'clock in the morning, he'd stay till midnight, and that was Dr. Robert Cathcart, graduate out of Stanford University. And he had a high death rate prior to coming. Not a single AIDS patient died after he used the protocol that he got from us. We held a press conference. We invited every doctor in the New York area and all the major doctors working on AIDS, all the scientific organizations working on AIDS. We invited the AMA. We invited the editors of New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet. We invited all the AIDS groups. We invited all the AIDS foundations. Not one single person attended. But we went ahead and filmed it, and it's there. We cured AIDS, and they didn't. They caused people to use AZT, and 300,000 died. That's the reality. That's the world we live in. So Anthony Fauci can go out and lie and say this, yet 
it is Anthony Fauci and the larger organization, the National Institute of Health under Collins, that approved hundreds of grants worth billions of dollars cumulatively for gain-of-function research labs. Now, these are all secret. You didn't know any of them existed. And they're making biological weapons because that's the whole purpose of gain-of-function. You take a pathogen, whether it's a virus, bacteria, whatever it may be, and you weaponize it. You weaponize it so a person's normal immune system could not fight it. There'd be a high level of lethality. And that's what they did. And then when the CIA's own independent group of analysts reviewed the information, they found that it did come from a lab in Wuhan, and it was lethal. It was created there. And then the Institute of Pasteur's Nobel Prize-winning group of scientists led by Luc Montagnier found that they inserted the HIV virus. They inserted the, uh, the, uh, the, the pathogen that causes mad cow disease. And uh, they inserted other antigens in there. And, those, and it was all man-made. In fact, a patent, and we know this from uh, a doctor who did his homework on the patents and found out they've been working on this SARS weaponizing it since 2001. And there's a whole timeline and sequencing of who got the vaccine patent. By the way, the vaccine patent was actually by a Chinese scientist before it was even announced there was an epidemic. He had patented it. And then I guess he had a change of conscience and jumped off a building. Wuhan lab building, committed suicide, or so we're led to believe. And then, why did they have the vaccines in China ready before the outbreak? How do you do that unless you created the outbreak? And then you create the solution for whatever their political and ideological reasons. But all this is now out in the open, and Fauci is still lying. And uh, hopefully, those in power will bring them to justice. We've got to say goodbye to WBAI, and we're going to continue at the top of the show at prn.live. And uh, tomorrow, I'm going to play a clip about Generation Z. And this study shows they're not ready for the workplace. They're unprepared. Who says all of these employers out there? Now, I happen to be one of those employers, and I can tell you that they're, they're actually understating the problems. But I'll go into that, and you'll hear why General, Generation Z is unprepared for almost anything. And so this is what the people who allowed that environment, the educational curriculum, to de-evolve so they don't have to take math because it hurts your feelings, don't have to do homework, don't have to grade anything, go right into college without any entrance exams. Oh, and by the way, you know that plane that the door flew off? And then the same company had another uh, emergency where they had to, out of Japan, had to turn around and fly back because another technical emergency, and then another one on top of that. We just got some documents that show that the company's policy was to intentionally, to intentionally hire people who were emotionally disturbed. Yes. Who had mental illnesses. Yes. Because of equity. Well, we've, we've got, you know, we've got the three-toed penguin in there somewhere, and we've got all these other people who are not qualified to do anything except complain about being, not being acknowledged, but now we need some mentally incompetent people because who's hiring them? We're going to hire to work on our airplanes. Okay. All right. And you think that's a good idea? Of course it's a good idea. You know? No, it's not a good idea. That's how far down the rabbit hole 
that we've gone. And now it's getting some people's attention. Hopefully we'll get their attention and they'll be able to uh, change things. We need a whole new leadership. And by the way, just imagine this. Let's say Trump wins, for example. Hypothetical. Would he change anything? He's incapable of intellectual discussion on any topic. He is purely reactive at the ego level. Somewhere, someone said, son, you're 13. You've just got your first erection and a few pubic hairs. And by the way, you might even be able to shave this week. So stop growing where you're at. Because when he went there to clear the swamp that people wanted to, he hired only swamp creatures. Do you think he'd be any smarter this time around? Do you think he would not hire another bar as attorney general? Do you think anyone that he's going to hire in Washington is going to be a corporatist and against him or one of the insiders who are against him? After all, wasn't it Obama who led the campaign to try to have him discredited as a non-legitimate uh, president and putting Hillary Clinton and others up front? Yeah, it was. That's been proven. So he is incapable of making any rational intelligent decision. He doesn't read. He doesn't do his homework. He doesn't listen to people. He is 100% pure emotion. But for some people, he's the answer. And compared to what? This would be like if we only had two stooges instead of three stooges, and you were voting on which was the brighter of the two dim-witted stooges. Wow. Hey, but we're good at this. We, after all, we didn't vote for Ralph Nader. Think of the world... It would be today if we had, because the good Democrat, the new corporatist, the new uh, Democrats like Clinton, they wanted a different road for us to take, and they got people to take it. They won. Everyone else lost. So think about this before you waste a vote. Think about the person most likely to stop the nonsense and challenge it. Just a thought. That's up to you. We're out of time. I want to thank you all for listening. Have a nice day.